Okay, we're, we're going to get started, or at least by encouraging you to turn to, uh, in this case, Isaiah 7. I'll explain all of that in a minute, but Isaiah 7. It's okay. And uh, we're going to read partially uh, in Isaiah 7 through uh, to the end of... Uh, well, we'll just read all of chapter 7 in Isaiah, and then we're going to poke our heads into Matthew a little bit as well. And we're just going to put both those texts in front of you, uh, and then we're going to try to examine them together. And I'll be reading from verse 1 in Isaiah 7, and it goes, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, the king of Israel, came up to Judah to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go to meet Ahaz, you and Sherezabub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway of the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Ramallah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Ramallah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whom these two kings you dread, they will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord, will the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is behired on the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair and the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows as a man will come there, from all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So we're going to stop there, Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy of the virgin birth. And 
I'm going to take a brief moment to explain what we're doing exactly in Isaiah. So we've been studying through Daniel. Uh, Last week, we took kind of a pause out of Daniel 7 and just examined the general purpose of prophecy. This week, we're taking a look at a specific prophecy and how that prophecy comes to fulfillment. Because when we talked about prophetic uh, interpretation, one of the things we mentioned was how other prophecies are fulfilled will give us an indication of how uh, well, how, how some prophecies are fulfilled will give us an indication of how other prophecies are to be interpreted. So heading into Daniel 7, it would be helpful for us to know, well, how does scripture fulfill other prophecies that are given to us? So uh, and if, if you're brainstorming a lot of prophecies that scripture talks about and ones that are important for the Christian faith, there's few that might rise to the level of commonality and importance as Isaiah 7. For example, we're about to enter into a month here, the Christmas season, the Advent season, And this passage will be read. This passage will be reflected on, and people will talk about this text as it relates to Jesus, to his conception, to his incarnation, and the significance of all these things. So Isaiah 7 is a consequential prophecy for that reason. Now, the other reason we're taking this excursion out into Isaiah is because there are few texts that enemies of the church and enemies of Scripture will attack more than this text. And when I say enemies of the church, I'm referring to anyone who would reject that this text would apply to Jesus, uh, such as the Jewish people. Jewish rabbis will interpret this text with an exclusion to Christ, that it has no fulfillment in, in Christ. And liberal scholars will interpret this text saying that Matthew actually abused the translation of the text when he when he applied it. So let's turn to Matthew's use of this text in Matthew chapter 1. First book in the New Testament, first chapter We don't get very far into the canon of the New Testament without being confronted with an interpretive issue, or I should say a seeming interpretive issue. And so I'm going to read starting in uh, just verse uh, 19 of Matthew chapter 1. And it reads, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, the son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in parentheses, which means God with us. So if you are interpreting scripture, you're reading the context of Matthew, uh, and, you, and let's say you have no view of the Isaiah prophecy, right? You just read Matthew, which honestly is how many evangelical Christians read this text. You would be like, great. And if I turn to Matthew, what I should expect to see is Isaiah say something like, and in the future, a child will be born who will deliver their people from their sins, and you will call his name Emmanuel. That's what most evangelicals expect when reading just Matthew and not having read Isaiah. But when you read this text in Isaiah, you don't get that exact same flavor. So then the question becomes, well, who's correct? Is Matthew abusing the text? Is Isaiah uh, saying something that is not apparent or obvious? How do we reconcile these things together? So uh, because of the consequential nature of this text, that's why we're looking at this prophecy in particular in our study of of Daniel. Uh, The purpose of an excursion is to add richness or to add flavor to the overall experience. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to add richness to our overall understanding of prophecy. So we're taking the excursions out of Daniel uh, here into Isaiah 7. So let's look at the qualifications of this prophecy in in Isaiah 7. 
and we'll try to say, okay, how is this prophecy fulfilled, and what does that have to do with Christ? So uh, the first thing you'll notice is the context. This is the first thing that we're trying to check off on our box, right? What is the immediate context of the passage we're looking at? So that's why I read all of chapter 7 of Isaiah, colors in some of that context. If you were to go earlier into Isaiah, just, you can trust me on this, you can read it yourself. Earlier in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 6 is kind of its own independent unit. Not that it's removed entirely from Isaiah 7, but the point is Isaiah 6 doesn't have a narrative effect on Isaiah 7. So he started reading at the beginning of the context in a time transition. And the context is this. The northern kingdom of Israel has split from the southern kingdom. This has happened generations ago. The northern kingdom is now in league with one of the enemies of the southern kingdom. So the northern kingdom, which is uh, 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 Pekka, is the, is the king of uh, Syria, the son of Ramallah. Uh, or sorry, Pekka is the king of uh, Israel. And then Rezin is the king of Syria. So Pekka is the king of the northern kingdom. And Rezin is the king of Syria, which is the, the world power at that time. And they have conspired together to destroy the southern kingdom of Israel, so the southern part of the tribes. And they've just conspired together to destroy it, so likely that Pekka can reign over the southern kingdom, and then uh, Syria can have a vassal state, a people who are subject to them. So Pekka gets kind of like his own artificial kingdom. So he's conspired with the enemies of Israel to destroy the southern kingdom. And Ahaz, who's the king of the southern kingdom, is the one who is reigning in that day, and he hears the news that essentially his enemies conspired with the global superpower of the day, and so he's feeling like they're going to lose, there's no hope for them. And so it's in that context, in the threat of this encroaching attack, that we get Isaiah to go to Ahaz, and he makes them his prophecy. And the first part of the prophecy is simply a prediction, and the prediction is uh, in verse 7, referring to the plans of the two enemies, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. So Ephraim is encroaching on, on Judah, and God says, in 65 years, Ephraim won't even be a problem for you guys, because they'll be shattered from being a people. So he says, don't, essentially, don't worry about this threat Ahaz, it'll be taken care of, this is a fleeting threat, it won't hold any weight. And so, and then he says in verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is, a, is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramallah. And, and essentially saying, this king is, is a false king. This king will not stand. And within 65 years, they'll be, they'll be brought, uh, they'll be smashed. And later in Isaiah, it becomes clear that he's referring to the exile of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, not the Syrians, at the hands of the Assyrian army. So the first part of the prophecy is a prediction that in the future, the southern kingdom will be spared from the northern kingdom. That's part one. Part two is a specific sign offered to Ahaz. And the sign is essentially, if, you, if, you don't, if you're not so sure about my prediction 65 years from now, I'll give you a prediction right now that will come true in the near future. And the point of this prediction is to give you assurance that what I spoke about the future prediction will come true. So this is a sign. It's an indication that the other thing that I said is true. Uh, Jesus performs signs and wonders, and those are to validate future things and other things that he says about himself. So the sign confirms the prediction. And the sign is, uh, we see it in there in verse uh, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So if we're looking at context, or let's say characterizations of this, this sign fulfillment, so let's say what is the sign uh, there's going to be a virgin, 
She will have a son. The son will be called Emmanuel. And so that's uh, just verse 14 there. She'll conceive, bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. And uh, verse 15 and 16 say roughly the same thing. Uh, essentially, before the kid is old enough to do certain things, such as uh, eat, eat the milk and, uh, or sorry, uh, consume the milk and, and eat the curds, uh, this, this problem will go away. It says, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil, choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So the two kings are Pekah and, Ramal, and uh, Rezin, and these two kings will no longer be a problem. So in 65 years, this is going to be taken care of in totality, but in the immediate future, within, within the lifetime of this child before he's even old enough to know good from evil, this will be taken care of in an in a immediate kind of thing. And so there's this son to be born, and we can say that it will happen uh, shortly. And that is from uh, verse 15 and 16. So that would be the context for the short, uh, the short nature of it, right? He's giving a timeline on this prediction. And then it says that the Lord will bring up to you and your people upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And then there's a, in, in the ESV, there's a little dash the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria, is, so essentially, this is a sign that you will be spared the current two enemies, but in the future, Assyria is going to come and they will be a real problem for you. So it's not all good news to, the king, to, to Ahaz, but it is at least a, a temporary promise to Ahaz that he will be spared this immediate punishment. Okay, so that's, let's say, the immediate context of the sign. Now you might be thinking at this point, well, if, the, if it happens shortly and it's a virgin and the child will be called Emmanuel, uh, it's becoming maybe partially clear how this might relate to Jesus, but still not totally worked out yet. But I'm going to add first a layer of confusion and then a layer of clarity. So the layer of confusion, let's go to chapter 8 of Isaiah. And so remember, we're trying to understand first the context. So chapter 8, uh, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, this is Isaiah, the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it the name of the, the write on it the common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebekariah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. And then uh, I'm going to skip a little bit of narrative, but to verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 8. He says, Behold, this is Isaiah talking, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in the Mount of Zion. So Isaiah says, Him and his children are signs uh, from the Lord of hosts to Israel. Okay? So uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah seems to indicate one of the things that was in common with the first prophecy. So the first prophecy in, in seven is that it will happen shortly. And you'll remember the language before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, these things will come to pass. And then in Isaiah chapter eight, verse four, you have an almost repetition of the same idea. Verse four says, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Assyria will be carried away. So Damascus and Syria, those are the two kingdoms, which are the problem for Israel. So the child in chapter 8, verse 4, is the sign fulfillment of chapter 7, verse 14. Okay? So the, the child in chapter 8, Marshal al-Hashbaz, is the, let's say, the immediate vindication of Isaiah's words. 
Now you might be thinking, well, we just read Matthew say that Isaiah says these words are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, right? And Jesus is, is not going to come for uh, a while <laughs> in, in this text. So now the question, okay, well, does Matthew appropriately cite this text, okay? How does this prophecy come to pass? And I want to put forth maybe a framework of understanding prophecy, which is a promise and fulfillment framework for understanding prophecy. So I'll just write that here so you can just keep it in your mind. Promise, fulfillment, framework, okay? And this is how most of the prophecies in Scripture are fulfilled as it relates to the unfolding revelation of time. So to understand this, we have to understand first what is, what is being promised to Ahaz, okay? Why would God spare the southern kingdom of Israel from the other two kingdoms? Ahaz is a particularly wicked king. In fact, even in the text that we read, he challenges God, right? He, he says, I don't want a sign. Don't give me a sign. He's, he's challenging God. So Ahaz is not an upright character. So why would God spare Ahaz? Well, Ahaz is a descendant of David. Ahaz sits on the southern throne. He is of the line of David. So why would God have an interest in sparing Ahaz? It's actually not because Ahaz is all that righteous. It's because in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David that he will see to it that his lineage, the throne will not depart from his lineage, and that there will be a ruler in his line from which the kingdom will reign forever. There will be peace and abundance. So this is a promise made to David. And it's not because of Ahaz, but because of David, that God's going to spare the southern kingdom. So God makes a promise to Ahaz, and the promise is, you'll be spared your two chief enemies. And the, this promise is one that will unfold over time. So first, the promise in 2 Samuel 7 comes true, for example, in Solomon, and then in Solomon's uh, son, and his son's son, and all the way to Ahaz. And now there's a, there's a precipice or a, a threatening point. And the threatening point is, will the southern kingdom be destroyed? Will the promise of God fall short, right? Will the king be removed from his throne? Will the promise fail? And God's going to continue to fulfill the promise by essentially saying, Ahaz, you'll be spared. Your two enemies will be dealt with. And here's the immediate sign to you that that will be the case. Now, in that same framework, we know that the full scope of the prediction to spare Ahaz is not really interested in keeping Ahaz alive. It's interested in keeping the lineage of David alive, okay? And within that context, promise fulfillment, you can understand how when in the New Testament, Jesus comes, as Matthew has just said, from the throne of David, Matthew chapter 1, then he immediately makes the context that this child to be born will deliver his people from their sins, and this is actually going to be a fulfillment of the promise made to Ahaz by the prophet Isaiah, because the promise to Ahaz is not really dealing with Ahaz, it's dealing with David's lineage, David's throne. So how is Jesus a fulfillment of Isaiah 7? It's not because Jesus is the immediate child that Ahaz sees, but because Jesus is also a child born to a virgin who is going to be the pinnacle or the culmination of the promise made to Ahaz. Okay? So you see that in the text. The New Testament usage is not one that says there was no near-term fulfillment and that only Jesus can be the, the far fulfillment, but it, it's one that sees Jesus as the culmination of the great many fulfillments of this promise to Ahaz. So Ahaz is given a sign, the immediate child, Mar Shalal Hashbaz is his name. And then you have the far-term use of the text in Matthew. Now there's one more, let's say, issue or 
thing that we must deal with in this text, which is, uh, and depending on what translation you have in front of you, maybe a, uh, a fruitless uh, exploration, but I'm going to undertake it. Um, some of you might have a translation that in verse uh, 13, oh, sorry, uh, verse 14, uh, instead of virgin, it will say the young woman will conceive and bear a son. Does anyone have a translation like that in front of them? Uh, the young woman will conceive and bear a son? No? Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some wisdom or some, some insight into something you might encounter from the secular world against Isaiah 7. So the text in Isaiah 7 is translated virgin, and that's a good, fine translation of the text. But it is technically argued that the, the translation doesn't have to mean virgin. It could mean young woman. It could mean maiden. It could mean some woman who's of a young age who could be assumed to be a virgin but does not necessarily need to be a virgin. Okay? And now here comes the, the critical scholars, and they say, well, that's because in the New Testament, we know Mary couldn't have been a virgin because there's no such thing as a virgin birth. So this, this does not have to do with a virgin at all. There's no such context for that. So the virgin birth is a uh, fabrication of Matthew and the, and the New Testament authors. The problem with that is that the, ver the word, which is there in the text, does not necessarily need to translate to virgin, but it certainly doesn't exclude virginity as being possible. If you think about the Jewish context, they are not Western Americans. And so young women in a Jewish context are safely and usually always assumed to be virgins. This is al almost always the case in Jewish context. And the word used of virgin or young woman almost always carries the thrust of sexual virginity. Now you think about that and you think about the New Testament where Matthew takes this prophecy and applies it to Mary and the virgin birth. And you'll remember that if you want to look at it again, Matthew 1, Jesus, uh, or sorry, uh, Jesus is spoken of as being given to Mary as a birth and a conception by the Holy Spirit. So Matthew is making the claim, regardless of what Isaiah's thrust is, Matthew is making the claim that this iteration of the fulfillment has in it an exclusive claim of virginity, which is to be Mary's. And the text makes that clear because Joseph is going to divorce Mary because he's never slept with her. And Joseph is told that the child to be conceived is born of the Holy Spirit, and you will call his name Jesus. So he says, she hasn't cheated on you. She hasn't been unfaithful. This is a miraculous work of God. And Luke makes it even more clear. He says, uh, I know that you have no known man, because Mary says, how will this be since I have not known a man? She says this to Gabriel. And Gabriel says, uh, it will be a miraculous undertaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the power of the Most High will come upon you, and you will conceive and bear a son. So the New Testament makes clear that the virgin birth is an exclusive thrust, but that's, again, not outside of the scope of the initial prophecy, because the initial prophecy says young woman, Mary is a young woman, and an even greater fulfillment of that promise would be if this young woman was a miraculous sign, such as a virgin giving birth to a son, and this son actually dealing in full with the Davidic promise to save his people from their sins, their ultimate uh, issue. So this is, let's say, a framework for understanding uh, the promise fulfillment category of prophecy. Now, again, the reason maybe to, to go back to the beginning, the reason we're undertaking this and, and looking at all these texts is because when people who are doubtful of scripture or skeptical about the truth of scripture come to the text of scripture and they see apparent contradictions, they insist that this is because this is a human book written by men who made mistakes and that you can see the mistakes all over the book if you really read with an honest set of eyes, that you can see Matthew misquoting Isaiah and Isaiah not really meaning that. 
And that may be true at a cursory glance, that it seems that there are contradictions in the text. But the point is, one of the things that we hold as, as Christians about the truth of God's word is that any apparent or seeming contradiction in the text is not an actual contradiction. It simply appears to be to us. And if we really studied and we did the hard work and we immersed ourselves in the context and we tried to understand Matthew's use of the text and Isaiah's use of the text, we would actually come to a great many number of possible explanations for how this text could not be contradictory and could truly apply to Jesus. But the point is some people preclude the fact that it is in fact contradictory and so they insist that it therefore must be. But there's, uh, if, you, if you were to read Christian interpretation of this text, there's at least, I proposed one tonight, but there's at least three other ways to explain this apparent contradiction in the text and still walk away with Jesus being born of a virgin and Isaiah having given a promise to Ahaz and none of it being in contradiction to one another. The point though is simple. God's word is in fact the word of almighty God, not the work of a mere man. And as Christians, with that being a convictional belief that we have, any apparent contradiction in the text, part of being a studious uh, reader and studier of scripture is diving headfirst into texts like this that seem to contradict because those who are disciples uh, of, of scripture will be curious about these kinds of things. And if you're a more mature Christian, you need to be able to explain these things. But uh, even for your own edification, it gives you confidence and bolsters the uh, veracity of scripture in your own mind to be able to say, I see how this text does not contradict. It doesn't uh, interfere one way or the other. So that's, again, the reason why we're doing that. And again, the reason why we're looking at Isaiah 7 is it, it has its own controversy. But Daniel, the whole back half of Daniel, is one of the main problems that critical scholars have with Daniel. They say, this is a fabrication. Daniel is a, a nobody. He was made up. And we know that because he accurately predicts things hundreds of years after his time that he couldn't have possibly known. So we know that Daniel is not writing from the time period he claims to be writing at. And they point to all kinds of things that take place in Daniel. And that's because they've excluded certain things like the ability of a prophetic insight or the ability of, in this case, a virgin birth. And so because we're aware of those prejudices, we're going to look at the text and say, well, we're okay with those kinds of things. And so we don't need to necessarily exclude it. So this is one example. But as we go through the rest of, let's say, Daniel, uh, we're going to see, we're going to bump into all kinds of things like this, where the secular world comes at it and says, this is a, a proof of the script, of scripture being flawed. And we're going to say, no, it's actually not, because we actually have a category for the supernatural intervention of God into human history. So this is, uh, let's say, an uh, excursion into Isaiah 7 to help us understand better prophecy so we can understand Daniel better. And with that, we're going to move into hopefully a time of discussion that will be edifying and will cover all of the things which I have neglected to mention in this time. And uh, yeah, let me just pray before we do that. Father, I thank you for uh, your word to us, uh, particularly for your uh, promises. Uh, we know that your word is sure. Uh, your promises are firm. Uh, heaven and earth may pass away, but your words, Lord, they will never pass away. And so we pray that uh, with that being the case, that you would enliven our minds and our hearts uh, to study your word, to study it with hope and with confidence, that all of the things which you uh, claim in your text, all of the things which you reveal to us are uh, understandable, they are uh, logical, uh, they are reasonable, for you are a God of reason. Uh, and that you would give us eyes to see and believe and understand uh, and make sense of your word, Lord. Would you give us uh, submissive hearts to, uh, to studying and, and learning at the feet of your word? And would you give us your spirit to help us understand all that it says? We pray this in your name. Amen.